All right, so uh, oh my god, this is gonna be a nightmare to edit. <laughs> Not least with these fucking chip sounds <laughs> that persist somehow. Like, yeah, I won't crinkle anything. I'll just eat <laughs> obnoxiously for the entire episode. I'm almost done, so shut the fuck up. Us. I think we've already met, haven't we? But I don't even know you by that. Welcome to Project A Plus. My name is Hugh. Your name is Hunter. What films will we be talking about today? That was a bit mealy mouthed. Let me try that again. No, that's it. Welcome to Project A Plus. My name is Hugh. Your name is Hunter. By God. What films will we be talking about today, sir? Um, we're going to talk about uh, three films, if I can refer to them as such. Ah, uh, you may. I give you permission. Okay, thank you. One is called. In the Moon of the Shadow. Mm-hmm. The other one is called The Blackest House. And the third one is called The Woman the Day I Became. Uh, so, uh, do you want to get the show started with uh, some Meals of the Day, you? You know what, my friend? I would love to. Reels on Meals on Reels on Meals on Reels. So, uh, Hugh, what meals have you um, put in, inside of your mouth and, and chewed and then swallowed and then did the rest today? Uh, so today I have consumed uh, two pieces of rye bread, defrosted from the freezer, then toasted, spread with uh, margarine and uh, marmite. Mm. So you went back to your regularly scheduled diet today? Yes, correct. Mm. Although my regularly scheduled diet is normally a cheaper bread. Oh. Uh, I've still got the coffee that I started at breakfast beside me. Uh, what did you eat? Um, for breakfast this morning, you know, I had one, one cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And one bowl of Rice Krispies. Which you famously consumed dry. Delicious. Then you, for lunch, I had one egg and cheese sandwich. Egg and cheese sandwich? I fried an egg, got some cheese, put it together, on some bread, and then ate it. Just like an open-faced sandwich? Nope. So it was enclosed? Mm-hmm. And was the bread toasted? It was toasted. Okay. But the cheese wasn't melted or anything? The cheese was melted. It was melted? Yeah. The egg was hot enough to melt it. And additionally, I had some Chex Mix. Some Tex Mex. Some Chex Mix. Oh. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> it's a snack food um, that we eat here in Australia. Can you explain what it actually is? Um, do you know what Chex are? No. It's just like a savory snack food. It's just all these little pieces mixed together. Okay. It's good stuff. Very salty. And then... 
for dinner, I had an old favorite heel that I talked about on the show before. Evangelion? Yep, I ate Shinji Ikari. <laughs> no heel. I had some McDonald's. Wow. Delicious, truly. So, uh, you want to get on to our main feature this week? Let's do it, buddy. It's 2024. White supremacist rule. America's dead. States once united, now divided. Maybe I could go back. What is our main feature this week? Good question. What's it actually called? It's called In the Shadow of the Moon. Mm. And uh, it was directed by one Jim Mickle. Mm-hmm. When we decided to do this film, uh, we did so on the basis that it sounded like a piece of shit Netflix film, right? And the little description on Netflix made it sound like a piece of shit, shitty Netflix serial killer procedural. However, when this film opens with a title card that says Philadelphia 2024, I realized this was not going to be an ordinary serial killer procedural. And then what happens? We see some sort of urban destruction out the window of this high-rise. And then a weird American flag flutters past. And I was like, yes, this is going to be amazing. And it was. (laughs) But then it flashes back to some point in the 80s, I think. Yes. Yeah, it's like 88. Various people are randomly dying. Three people. A bus driver starts bleeding out her ears and nose. Mm. The same thing happens to a concert pianist and a cook at a diner. Yes. What is going on? Why are these random people suddenly dying? Uh, I, I, would, I couldn't tell you. Well, let's keep watching then. Enter a pair of uh, Philly cops. Boyd Holbrook as Locke. Bokeem Woodbine as Maddox. Michael C. Hall as their superior, Holt. Why do they call him Locke? Holt also happens to be the brother of Locke's pregnant wife. He's played by who? Uh, Sexist. What's her name? Um, Jean? No, uh, Rachel? Maybe Jean. Maybe Maybe the actress is named Rachel. The actress who played Jean is called Rachel Keller. And if that was Rachel Keller... Uh, never mind. Alright, alright, so these people are dying. These cops are investigating it. Locke and Maddox. Uh, they're, they're upstart cops, but they're pretty low scale, right? Low rank. They're just, you know, they're just a couple of cops. They're just street cops, right? Beat cops. Beat yeah, cops. they're not, not detectives. Beat street cops. They want to be detectives. Beat cops. They want to be detectives. Locke and Maddox. Yeah. Locke in particular is very ambitious because he's our white star. <laughs> uh-huh. So he's really leading the charge. Michael C. Hall, although his superior... Is his inferior in detective work, right? Yeah, well, sort of. Locke is like the one, you know, getting to the bottom of this. He's like, ah, I found some evidence. And they're, they're running around chasing this, this crime, right? And they shouldn't be. It's not really their responsibility. It's Michael C. Hall's responsibility as Holt. He's like, he's like five minutes ahead of him. It's not like that much. Of, it's not that dramatic of a... Uh... But still, he's ahead. He's our boy. So Locke and Maddox, they're racing around. They're like going, let's, let's, let's get to the bottom of this, even though it's not our responsibility. And we, we're contributing our direct orders to presumably walk the beat that we're assigned. So Hugh, um, who is responsible for these murders? They find a suspect 
who is a, an African-American woman in a hoodie. So they chase her. There's a confrontation. Um, uh, his partner gets shot in the leg. Um, and she gets pushed into a train, but not before revealing some weird personal information. Well, it's also important to note that Locke is responsible for her death. Yeah. And then um, he finds out that his wife is in labor. He rushes to the hospital. It's too late. She's already dead. <laughs> She's not already dead. She's about to die. <laughs> and then the movie cuts forward to uh, 1990. Ten years later. No, it's like eight years. Nine years. It's like eight years. Nine years. Eight, eight years. Nine years. Yeah, eight years. It's every nine years. Eight years. It's leading up to the ninth year. Eight years. So it's eight years and some and eight however years. many months. No, it's like eight it's years. shortly it's before. Eight years. It's eight years. I was right. I was right. <laughs> Fuck off. No, it's every nine years. No, it's every eight years. In every nine years. And then the next one is nineteen ninety six. But but the the event happens every nine years. No, I don't accept this. So anyway, um, the sci fi thing is every nine years, but. But the film has to flash forward God, like, okay, shortly okay, before it happens, So, right? it's the 90s. Um, he's a deadbeat dad. He's been a, promoted to a detective. There's some racial unrest in this city uh, based on the fact that this guy, you know, basically murdered this suspect uh, and then became a detective. Look at the Wikipedia page. It says every nine years. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It does. Uh, I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> it even says after the, she dies in childbirth, the next line is nine years later. Yeah, but then it says 1996. No, no, no. Where does it say 1996? Uh, to an aircraft manufactured in 1996. Yeah, manufactured in 1996. That's not where the next bit is set. Yeah, let's, let's pull up the Netflix. I'm going to pull it up right now. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do this. I actually think you're right. Let's just move on. So what happens in 1996? So we flash forward nine years. To 1997. It's his daughter's birthday and his wife's death day. Yeah, it's also the anniversary of the death of the young woman in the subway, right? Yeah. And there are protests against police brutality. I think we should uh, emphasize the fact that this is directly alluding to a Black Lives Matter style movement. Yes. So where are we? We're 10 years later, 9 years later. The same thing seems to be happening again. Yeah. The woman appears again somehow, even though, you know, she died in the subway nine years previous. So what's happening? They're like, what's going on? Is a mysterious doctor played by some random dude who talks about t- traveling through time? Is he, could he possibly have anything to do with the, the, the case? Probably not. The, the structural gambit of the film is that it picks up every, after every, like, nine years. It flashes forward nine years. Three times. Four times? <laughs> I can't believe we're still talking about this. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. That's all we're going to talk about. And then, can you solve the mystery of, of what happened to you with this potentially time-traveling woman? Can he? Yeah, what's going on? Why Why every nine years do people start randomly dying and this woman reappears again? Yeah, yeah. We should just say, I'm not, I'm not going to go into details, but we should just say that Locke has not taken the death of his wife very well. Sure. And he obsesses over this case. Does he, does he grow facial hair as a response to sadness? Yeah, and, and his haircut. So he, he starts clean-shaven in the 80s. Then in the 90s, he's, he's grown a mustache. Then uh, nine years later, he has a beard. And then finally, he has a ponytail. And that is the progression of sadness. Yeah. An obsession. That's true. True in uh, real life. It's really uh, meditation on the way that... Uh masculinity warps with age i think now hunter mm. how much did you love this film um you know what Hugh? uh not at all but uh <laughs> i have to say 
the first section of this film, I was kind of into it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I liked how gruesome the bit is. We forgot to mention that, or we neglected to mention the fact that as part of their deaths, their brain starts leaking out of their nose, <laughs> which is really gruesome. And, you know, I kind of enjoyed the visual of these people, like, leaking blood from their eyes and their, you know, various orifices. Is this film original in any way at the beginning? No. But I, I kind of enjoyed the X-Files, the, like, setup to this, where something bizarre is happening and you really don't know what's going on. Uh, I the, the moment, the moment that uh, he has the first confrontation with uh, the killer, I started losing interest. And then the, I thought the rest of the film was really boring. But mm. the first 30 minutes or so, just kind of into it. I, I enjoy, I like the part where, you know, um, they go to the diner and uh, his face has been cooked onto the stovetop. Like, where, where's the braid? And they pull up in the grease trap and they're like, oh, I thought that was enjoyable. It had a, it had a good note of like gro- grotesque uh, of pleasure, you know? Okay. Um, but uh, I thought thought the rest of the film was charmless and generic, and I thought that its politics were very strange. <laughs> and uh, at first, I was like, "Oh, I, I, this film seems really conservative," given that it's like, "No, these these police officers should be allowed to investigate these these cases." The the, the people protesting the 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 murder of um, young black people they don't know the whole story, and I thought that was really tasteless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, I was just confused as to what it wanted to say, because uh, at the end of the movie, it's basically like the, the the moral of the film is basically like one of those stupid like "Would you go back in time and kill Hitler?" questions. That's basically what the film turns around, right? And uh, the answer, which I thought was surprising, was a resounding yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, what did you think about this movie, Hugh? I I didn't enjoy like the first. 30 minutes of this film as you did mm. on its own terms. I mean, again, I, I want to say, like, I don't think these, the first 30 minutes of the film are like good, but I do think they're kind of, they have, they have a certain generic pleasure that I respond to, you know, I certainly appreciated the fact that this film had like a sci-fi twist. I thought it was just mm. going to be like See, a shitty I was, like, procedural. I wish it had been, a, I wish it had been like a, a horror, more horror movie twist mm. than the, the stupid time travel gibberish that we get. But I, I will say that I basically hate every single creative decision that went into making this film. And there's almost nothing else to say, but... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, more than anything, the, the emotion that the film inspired in me was boredom. And I had a lot of trouble, like, uh, not stopping myself from, like, clicking on the remote to see how much time mm. I left on the... left at it, that sort of thing. But, yeah, I, I do agree with you about it. It's uh, very peculiar and uh, misguided political uh, subtext. Mm. Um, the integration of Black Lives Matter was... Uh, <laughs> Curious choice, to say the least. And yeah, it basically does function as like a sci-fi redemption arc for a cop who kills a young black woman in a subway. And then by the end, it turns into basically an anti-Trump Terminator. <laughs> Pro-Terminator movie. So to spoil the, the twist or the ultimate reveal of this film... The woman that he shot turns out to be his daughter or something, mm. right? His granddaughter. Oh, granddaughter. Jesus Christ! Can you not even can you can not even bother to pay attention to the basic premise of the of the show? Yeah, the the woman turns out to be his granddaughter, and it was actually him in the future 
who sent her back in time to destroy these essentially uh, alt-right or far-right white supremacist um, people who will eventually inspire a movement that uh, destroys America or something, right? Some vague terrorist attack. That's, it's not defined. It does seem to want to say something about the, the current political climate in America, right? Yeah. It seems very, very clearly anti-Trump in that respect. I guess. You didn't, you didn't think it was the Trump parable we needed? It's a, it's a centrist film, kind of. <laughs> I have nothing else to say about this film. Let's see, I didn't really write down anything. Probably my favorite note was, I, I like the scene where uh, uh, he bought his, his wife a, a, a bracelet. Just because I was like, why are you bo- bothering to buy her a bracelet? You know she's going to get killed. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, was I right. All right, great, let's move on. Uh, so, pizza talk. What's it called? Pulitzer story. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza, lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a Pulitzer story, dig them fights. Alright, great. Uh, so, Pulitzer story. You have had any encounters with the highest art form recently? No. Have you? Yeah, actually, last night I had some pizza for dinner. Yeah, it was, um, you know, frozen oven pizza. It was fine. You know. Okay. That's all I got. One was cheese and one had mushrooms on it. Mmm. That sounds gross. Yeah, it was this fine. What? Uh, what's next? It's project time. Project time, 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 it's project time. House is Black. Let's do it. What is it? Uh, the House is Black is a documentary um, shot by... Faru Faroxad. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you had it pulled up before I did. Um, and it is about a leper colony in Iran. Yes, it's from 1963. That's true. And it is um, non-narrative, so <laughs> we don't really have much of a <laughs> uh, entryway into the film that way. No, the background is that it was essentially commissioned by a uh, social group mm-hmm. that wanted to improve the welfare of people suffering with leprosy. So it's, it's only about 22 minutes long, and the director, Forexard, was actually more known as a poet, a modernist poet. Mm-hmm. Her partner was Abraham Golestan, and she had worked with him on previous films that he made uh, as an editor. So this is her first film as director and editor. And uh, the narration of this film alternates between sort of matter-of-fact descriptions of the medical condition as well as religious text 
and Farrakhzad's own poetry, which she narrates herself. Though technically it's a documentary created for a specific social purpose, as, as you've already explained, it's not really a strict or traditional documentary. And it is perhaps useful to consider it in the context of Farrakhzad's background in poetry. It's quite formally audacious, I would say, for this type of documentary, and it's, it becomes an impressionistic assembly of images mm. with the sort of poetic narration acting as the primary through line. Sure. And in some ways, it anticipates the later developments of the essay film. Mm. This is considered the precursor of the Iranian New Wave. Yes. In a similar way to perhaps uh, La Pointe Court being considered a precursor to the French New Wave. And that similarly was a part documentary made by a woman who was in a relationship with another filmmaker. There you go. All ties together. What did you think of this? Um, uh, I don't know. What do you think about this? Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is a top ten episode. <laughs> so go ahead. <clears throat> what did I think of this? Mm-hmm. This radical, legendary, groundbreaking film? Yes. Now, because I'm a bad person... Uh-huh. <laughs> And because I've seen the trailer for Tom Six's forthcoming film, <laughs> The Onanir Club, I must confess that I did imagine white women masturbating to this. What? But it's a testament to this film's strength and its refusal to make its subjects the objects of voyeurism that this film would probably fail to get them off. Mm. That's my review. <laughs> did that answer my question? Which was? <laughs> did, you, did you like it? I did, yes. Mm. It's a good length. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll speak more about it. So, the film begins with a leprosy sufferer mm. whose face has been deformed by the disease, looking at herself, or indeed us, through a mirror. Mm. I thought this was an important framing element because it foregrounds the voyeuristic component, or at least the potential for voyeurism inherent in the material, while also giving agency to the subjects of the documentary. Like, it tells us that these people know how we see them or how we might see them, Mm. and they're not merely going to be the subjects of our gaze. I think that's a really important element to set up the rest of the film, because it had a social purpose to remind the rest of the society that these people are no more or less human than anyone else and they're capable of the same sort of experiences and joys and communities Mm. as we are Mm -hmm. because obviously leprosy was a taboo subject at the time Mm. and now it is not a subject (laughs) now it's not a subject um and they were relegated to these colonies and essentially not talked about and there was a shortage of resources to properly care for them. And uh, I believe this film did have a positive impact and there were and more doctors and uh, staff went to these communities in the wake of it to some extent. And I kind of like the way the, the religious text provides a sort of ironic counterpoint to the images at times. Hmm. I didn't really see it as ironic, but... I think at points it was ironic. Hmm. Well, you, I have to admit that uh, I was extremely tired when I watched this. <laughs> oh, shit, really early in the morning for whatever reason. 
Uh, to be honest, it didn't really make much of an impression on me at all. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, that's kind of, um, I don't know. I probably should have watched it again, honestly. But uh, I was kind of, I was kind of, kind of bored by it, to be honest. Twenty-two minutes long. So who's who's the who's the bad person now? So we basically talked about a Tom Six film, and you <laughs> being bored about it. Yeah, that's the entirety of our of our review. No, I, I thought this was I thought this was really good, and especially impressive as a first film. Although she'd had editing experience in the past. And especially the editing was, was really well done. It's just not very... Um, I mean, obviously I could see what, what social purpose it would have served during the time it was created. But the fact that leprosy is not really much of an issue in our society <laughs> made it feel kind of like, you know... I don't know. It felt like a transmission from another world, you know? Well, I, I, but I think it transcends its purpose. I don't think, it, I don't think leprosy needs to be see, a, I didn't a going necessarily, concern. I, I didn't necessarily feel that... Maybe it's because I had read that beforehand, but uh, pretty much the entirety of how I read this was like, as like, oh, this is an argument against, you know, sort of like a, a, a stereotypical treatment of lepers, you know? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it has a, that was a specific purpose. Like, it was designed to do that. Yeah. So, but then I, I it, it was hard for me to read that as, read the phone as anything but that. You know what I mean? But even if leprosy doesn't exist now, you can still empathize with the fact that there was this community. No, I can't. Does leprosy not exist at all now? Surely it does. No, it exists, but it's it's just really easily treatable. And it's also like it doesn't have to be confined to leprosy. Yeah, I know, but I just found the the specifics of this film was so it seemed so targeted at getting people to feel or to to sort of go against their perceived notions of what leprosy was. You know what I mean? Yeah. That I was like, okay, I don't really have any perceived notions of leprosy, so what am I getting out of this? Uh, poetry? No. <laughs> poetry <laughs> sucks. <laughs> Aesthetics? Radical and painting I did, I did th- Shut up. I don't know, I just I just found this to be unengaging. I don't know if the same says that. Wow. And again, I was like really tired when I watched it, and I probably should have been... I should have watched it in the middle of the day instead of in the morning. But uh, I made my choices, you. Well, I mean, we can take um, we can take twenty minutes out of the podcast now and give you give you a chance to redeem yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. Maybe I'll watch it again and really love it. Uh, I did like the essayistic tendencies, but uh, to be honest, I found the the back half for you know it's just the narrator reciting poetry and just kind of images of them doing random things to be. I mean, I like some of the the sequences, like the bit where the guy is like pushing the kid around in a wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. But I just found it to be sort of like okay, I I I understand the purpose of why it, what it's doing. It didn't really feel probing or searching to me. It was kind of like okay, I, I get what it's putting down. Also, it wasn't helped by the fact that the version, the subtitles that I read were really hard to read at times. Yeah, the one on YouTube was difficult to make out. So uh, it kind of was just meaningless words that I didn't understand because I don't speak Persian. Uh, anyway, do you have anything else to say about the house is black? I thought it was good. You thought it was bad. I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was it was one of those Sorry, films. You hated it. Let me let me let me summarize with you. It felt like a film that I would watch for class that I'd be pretty unengaged with, and then I'd sit there a discussion about people where people would praise it, and I would sit there being like, I didn't really find this film that interesting. I wouldn't say anything. And mm. That's it. Basically, Hugh, I don't like art. That's my final say. Uh, anyway, next, the Onania Club. I'm riding for my freedom. 
The next film is The Day I Became a Woman, jumping forward to the year 2000. Mm. <laughs> in, our, in our peerless <laughs> survey of Iranian cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Our without peer survey of Iranian cinema. And here is this film directed by, and written by. This film was uh, directed by Marzia Meshkini and co written by Meshkini and her husband, mm. Mohsen Makhmobaf. Yes. And the film itself was produced as part of a filmmaking school that Makhmobaf established. Mm. I didn't know that. You did more research than I did. And Mishkini studied there for the four years preceding this film. Now, some critics have speculated that Makhmobaf was the real director of this film, along with films credited to his daughter. But I was reading something by the critic Jonathan Rosenbaum who dismissed this notion, not merely because it has a ring of sexism about it, but because mm, it Mark Buff was off shooting his own film at the time of production. Mm. Though Mark Buff has a screenwriting credit on this film, Mishkini has reported that he merely provided the outlines of the stories, which are fairly minimal, while she worked out the dialogue and the characters and assembled the actual shooting script. Sweet. So it is a, is a film that is divided into three sections. Mm. Three interlinked sections. Um, and the first section tells the story of a little girl um, in the lead-up to the, the day she becomes a woman, which is like age nine or something, I think. Yes. But that only happens at the stroke of midday, and she wants to play with her friend, who's a boy. So her, her mother allows her to, to go off and, you know, be a little girl. Yep. Um, until, it, until the stroke of midday. With the expectation to just come back and then... Be unveiled. Second section is about a woman who is disobeying her husband by um, going on this bicycle race. Mm. And it's her attempts to escape her family. And the last is about a, an older woman who has inherited money and uh, purchases a bunch of household furniture, which she initially sets up on the beach and then sails out to a cruise ship. So like any um, sort of anthology or triptych multiple story film, it can live or die uh, on the strength of their individual components and in the ways that these stories provide resonance for the stories around them. Uh, do you think this film uh, worked in those ways that I listed or do you think it was lacking? I actually liked this more than I expected to given I'm not that fond of <laughs> anthology sort of films, you know. Mm where it tells discrete stories, even if they might interlink and resonate with one another. Mm -hmm. But I, I think this format actually worked well for this particular film mm. for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. Great. Um, but I was actually very impressed with this film. Mm. I thought I found it very satisfying personally. Did you like all the segments? Yes. Mm. The, there's arguments to be made about which ones are the stronger and which ones are the weaker, but, they all worked for me to some level. Mm. What about you? Yeah, I think I am in agreement with you, though. I think I like the film slightly less than you did. Mm. 
Um, I think the first segment is really strong. Me too. Uh, and then I thought the second segment was uh, conceptually sound, and uh, I like this sort of surreal images it conjures. I felt this way about the second, the second and the third one, to be to be honest. But I thought the second one was a little long in the tooth, mm. <laughs> and it felt repetitious in a way that I didn't think. Uh, really um, inflected or underlined a specific theme or point. Um, and then the third one, I thought, uh, I like I like I like the very bizarre imagery that comes out of it, but <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about <laughs> like um, movies yeah, like Club? No, I couldn't stop thinking about uh, movies like Green Book and Driving Miss Daisy when I was watching it. <laughs> and that sort, of, that sort of hampered my enjoyment of a lot. So, yeah. I do think it ends strongly. Because there's this wonderful, surreal climax. So what, what, what did you think in more detail than the sort of bland um, overview that you just gave? Wow. Trying to fucking put you on blast. So I guess I guess neither of us knew exactly what to expect uh, from this film because we no. only came across it via a letterbox review. <laughs> yes. In the context of our, the previous film we discussed, or one of the films we discussed in a previous episode, The Circle. Mm. Yeah. Which came out this, this around the same time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was I was I was actually really impressed by it. The way it immediately announces itself with this striking shot of a makeshift sail flapping in the wind and a stirring musical cue. And then uh, I wonder if you felt the same as me here when we're introduced to our heroine emerging from like a tangle of sheets. I was reminded of uh, Panta Panchali. Yeah. The music sort of struck a similar tone too. It did. Yes. But um, this is probably the most visually dynamic of all the Iranian films that we've covered for this podcast. I think mm. Meshkini composes a lot of very striking images and exhibits a taste for the surreal and for the incongruous that some critics have compared to Fellini. I think the comparison to Fellini uh, is a bit superficial, even if it's not without basis. Certainly the third story leans yeah, you know, closest seem to that. Yeah, that did Fellini-esque, I guess. But it didn't really yeah, seem to be, have the same concerns as Fellini, I don't think. I've not watched many Fellini films, so I can't really say one way or the other. Now, the central story that you mentioned, which we should, we should say at this point features a horseback divorce, mm. I thought that was quite exceptionally constructed. And I even didn't mind the fact that it does seem to outstay its welcome a little bit. Mm. Like the, the, what it's trying to capture is some sense of exhaustion and endurance. So that kind of, it kind of fits in with what it's trying uh, to portray. To I agree with you, but I thought it was too much anyway. There's a difference between conveying sort of frustration and, and, and annoyance and, and, in that way, and then just doing it over and over again, you know what I mean? But certainly on a technical level, the way the camera is constantly in motion, syncopated with the action, yeah, uh, was really effective, I think. Mm. Now, the, the stories are very basic and elemental. We get minimal background um, to any of these characters and their situation. Sure. And we get a lot of very overt visual symbolism. So in the first story, we have the window bars that, that separate uh, the little girl Hava from her friend. Mm, which are doubled in the sail. Yes. And in the second story, like the horse riders chasing down uh, a cyclist is kind of like a tradition versus modernity thing. Mm. 
Yeah. And then we get the kind of surreal consumerism stuff in the final story. Yeah. But Meshkini also has a taste for the bizarre that kind of complicates these interpretations somewhat. I kind of like the fact that it does jump between these three kind of different stories and they have a little bit different feel to one another. They seem to have different goals and aims, but the filmmaking is, is quite consistent. That kind of resonated with me in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. There is something about it that is more than the sum of its parts, I think. It's also interesting to see different parts of Iran than we have seen in, in the films of Jafar Panahi and uh, Kirstami. Mm. This was shot on location at a place called Kish Island. Mm. And we actually see different ethnicities that we haven't seen before in Iranian cinema. Yeah. She even integrates the casual racism towards them that uh, occurs in, in the final segment. Yes. Via the old lady. Fucking old people, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. I'm actually curious to see her other film. She's, I think she's made two more films. One of them was co-directed with Makhmabov, but I would want to if we can, cover Stray Dogs. Okay. Uh, what's next? Box office, burn, Hollywood burn. Yep. Burn. Hollywood burn. That's right, mama. Burn. Hollywood burn. This podcast burn. Yep. Boxofficemojo.com. Great. We should just call the segment Box Office Mojo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they'll sponsor us. <sighs> okay. I got my uh, news all set up. You have your box office pulled up? I've got my box office pulled up, yeah. I actually don't have mine pulled up. Okay, here we go. All right, ready? Box Office Box office hooray, box office hooray, box office Alright, so weekend box office for both countries on the count of three. Three, two, one, Joker. Joker 2019. What was the, what was the amount of money that it grossed to you? Six and a half mil. Three, two, one. Ninety-six and a quarter mil. Wow. Yeah. I guess it's a fifth. 96 and a fifth. Great. Uh, so, Hugh, what a wonderful item of news have you brought for us today? Uh, I haven't selected one yet. Mm. Have you selected one? Because you can go first if you have. I have selected one. Then go. All right, Hugh. Uh, Clint Eastwood's Richard Duell is positioned for Oscars with a fall festival world premiere. Uh, so, Hugh, um, Richard Duell, uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, you know, new, next film, is going to premiere at... Uh, the uh, AFI Fest in November in Los Angeles. Um, Clint Eastwood is an American icon, said uh, Bob Gazale, AFI president and CAO in an official statement. It's an honor for the AFI to premiere the next chapter in his story career, one that continues to enrich the nation's cultural legacy with undeniable impact. Um, and Eastwood himself will be on hand to introduce the film, starring Paul Watcher Hauser, Sam Rockwell, Kathy Bates, John Hand, and Olivia Wilde. Uh, the film tells the story of an uh, eponymous security guard whose wife was upended by claims that he had planted a bomb in Centennial Park during the 1996 Olympics. Uh, cool. Uh, and the film will be released properly on December 13th in the United States. Okay, my news is that um, there is a John Wick spin-off in the works called Ballerina. 
Mm, and who's it uh, directed by? Uh, Len Wiseman. Mm, who's that? I don't know. He's the director behind the Underworld movies, and also the Total Recall remake. Uh, Alright, moving on. Bonus features. Bonus features. Hugh, I watched a couple films. Good on you. Um, three of, or four of which are part of the same series. So I started by my week, by, because uh, obviously I, I count my weeks, I divvy up my weeks um, based on when we record, as opposed to the more traditional methods of doing it. Yeah. Um, I started my week watching the film The Green Fog. Have you heard about this film at all? Yes, I've heard of it. So it is a sort of quasi-remake um, of the film, have you heard of this Quasi. Uh, Vertigo. Ah. It's made up of other footage from films, music videos, TV shows, etc. Uh, there were shots uh, in or set in and around the San Francisco area. Yeah, directed by one of my personal favorite filmmakers, Guy Madden, or co-directed anyway. It was also co-directed by Evan Johnson, who was... Uh, Madden's collaborator on his most recent full-length film, uh, The Forbidden Room. And this is a really um, funny and strange film. It sort of like uh, points to the sort of subconscious influence that Vertigo has had in other films. Uh, it's just this very weird and funny, you know, you know, experiment, basically. Um, probably my favorite part is when uh, after, you know, the basic plot of Vertigo, after uh, Scotty sort of... Um, loses his uh, or loses uh, Madeline. He loses control of the warp drive. Yeah. Uh, and then they crash to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Has anyone passed, has anyone passed Star Trek 4 and uh, Vertigo up? <laughs> I think we have to be the first. Uh, Wait, you, does he include you, you, of, you gotta watch. No, does uh, he include maybe. Star Trek 4? I kind of want to wait for it, but uh, I don't think, I mean, unless it's like a... Um, yeah, like It'd just be incidental scene. shots, like it wouldn't be shots with yeah. the characters in it. Right? I mean, but no, but he includes shots with characters and stuff, so... Oh, okay, right. I was wondering. Um, but there's a, there's a great series of sequences where to convey sort of uh, Scotty's post Madeline fugue state, right? Uh, he just cuts to this recurring uh, series of Chuck Norris <laughs> just wandering around the city. With it. And it made me uh, sort of reinterpret uh, Chuck Norris's famously stoned, cold, uh, you might, one might say, uh, uh, inhuman acting style as a, as a source of trauma rather than a, uh, or a site of trauma rather than a, as a site of uh, someone being a terrible person in terrible acting. <laughs> um, so I thought that was amazing and really funny. Um, and I, yeah, I definitely recommend checking it out if you can find it. Uh, I had to go through some uh, curious means to get my hands on it. Uh, mm. And because of how many, you know, like, rights it, it goes through, it, it probably is not ever a film that'll get, like, a wide release. Um, I don't even know if it's out on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I am very fond of, uh, of The Green Fog. Also, I think I, I forgot to mention that it was also co-directed by Galen Johnson. So. Oh, so there's three, three directors. Yeah, three credited directors. Guy Madden, Evan Johnson, and Galen Johnson. Yeah. So, just want to make that clear. Um, it has a great score, too. I really like this one a lot. Um, and then I had a pretty magical experience uh, where I went to the, so the New York Film Festival, which is a you know, yearly sort of 
film festival that um, is in New York. Yeah, um, some notable exceptions. Exceptions is mostly just a repository for films that have premiered elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, the big sort of I, mean, I guess there are two sort of big films that premiere there. That Chitty Edwarden film is coming out uh, soon. Which is what? And uh, Motherless Brooklyn, I think it's called. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then The Irishman. Man Scorsese's The Irishman. Uh, which is also going to come out soon. So, but uh, I did not see either of those films too. In fact, I didn't see a new film at all. Um, I saw a new version of a film. What? Which Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. You ever seen The Cotton Club, Hugh? Nope. Upon its release, it was kind of considered a uh, disappointing follow-up to Godfather movies. In terms of the mood it's invoking in the genre, and it was produced by the um, Robert Evans, who also produced the Godfather films, and they actually is uh, originally supposed to direct it. Um, Robert Evans. Yeah, um, hmm. but so uh, he and Coppola fought during the entire production. It famously went way over budget, as many of Coppola's pe- uh, films during that period did. Mm-hmm. Um. And it was, it's mostly been considered a disaster, I think. Um, but I really enjoyed this. I mean, you know, I haven't seen the original cut, so I can't say for sure how much of it is new. But I think this film is a great sort of... Um, it, it's almost a, a film about other films, you know. Because uh, the, the, the style that it uses is, is unlike The Godfather's sort of um, naturalism, is highly artificial, right? Did you say The Godfather's naturalism? Yeah, I think that's what it sort of goes for. You, I mean, you, not you really. I think, it, I think it definitely has, is, is Strady Park sort of a lived-in quality. But it's definitely more, like, naturalistic than this film is. Yeah, I guess comparatively naturalistic, we could say. Um, but because this film is... A lot of it's, it's the joy of it comes from the sort of ecstatic recreation of... So the Cotton Club was a... Um, a big uh, you know, club, uh, social place in uh, during the Harlem Renaissance, which um, where which basically all the performers were African American, but the clientele was exclusively white. Mm-hmm. So um, it sort of works as an intersection between you know race relationships in America and also uh, the influence of um, mobsters on popular culture. Um, so I think you know that's what that's what makes this film interesting. Uh, has this great sort of style. Uh, even if the lead performance by Richard Gere is a little, you know, it's, it's Richard Gere doing Richard Gere. <laughs> um, but it, it's fine. Uh, but it has some just, it has a great, I don't know, mood and atmosphere that it conjures up in. And has some just amazing uh, montages that sort of stitch the film together and, and bring it to, I don't know what I'm saying. It's good stuff. The story behind the original release, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it was something like the studio pressured Coppola to cut out a lot of the sort of more African-American specific sections to focus more on the Richard Gere sections. Yeah, and... um, And this is supposed to redress that to some extent. Yeah, it's it's divided, I would say about 40-60 between sort of Richard Gere's story, um, and there's like a parallelism between between the two stories too. So Richard Gere plays this musician who comes back to New York after having toured around the country for a while. Um, and uh, sort of, you know, tries to make it as a musician, eventually gets wrapped up in, in uh, auditioning for Hollywood movies. 
which is a pretty funny subplot. Um, and, you know, leads, leads to some um, self-reflexivity as well. Mm. Uh, as, you know, invoking Hollywood often does in, in these sorts of films. And then, but the, the second, the sort of the other story uh, involves, um, God, what's his name? Oh my God, I'm totally blanking. Uh, Gregory Hines, uh, who, like Gregory Hines was in real life, plays a tap dancer, um, who is like a rising star in the, uh, you know, the dancing scene in general. Um, and then sort of, it follows how they both sort of interact with the white and uh, black gangsters of the period and has Lawrence Fishburne in a pretty good um, supporting term. Um, but uh, Gregory Hines is, uh, his brother, um, Maurice Hines is also in it playing the character's brother. And this is important because both him and James Remar plays like the main like white gangster. Uh, part of the Q&A that was after, which is literally the greatest thing I've ever uh, experienced in my entire life. So featured such highlights as um, uh, Coppola comparing um, uh, the American public's uh, and like film producers' uh, relationship to uh, African immigrants, like lead films, to uh, his friendship with Danny DeVito, <laughs> and uh, at one point he very casually revealed that his daughter uh, Sophia Coppola was in the audience, <laughs> and he basically answered this. Was one sort of boring question and spun it off into about uh, you know thirty different topics um, before it was cut off cruelly by the moderators, and then uh, he also revealed that his hundred-year-old uncle was also in attendance, <laughs> which is also just like this because it, like, it was like one of the very last things he said. It was like, "Oh, my uncle, what's his name? He was a <laughs> you know producer during uh, on Broadway during this time <laughs> this year." He just it's like, cool, what, "What you can wave, uncle?" It was really it was really funny. Um, it was definitely the best possible version of like an audience-led Q&A that I've seen. And James Remar and, and Marty Sines, who were both there, basically said like three lines a piece, which is really funny to me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's basically the Cotton Club. So Gregory Hines, you mentioned the fact that he was, he's a dancer himself. Yeah. But um, I was just looking him up, and he studied under the Nicholas Brothers, who mm. were famous dancers uh, of the Harlem Renaissance. And if you or our audience has not seen the clip of them dancing from stormy weather, you should definitely do that because it's amazing. So perhaps the relationship between um, the brothers and the Cotton Club is based on the relationship between those brothers. Quite possibly. Um, but uh, I best know Gregory Hines from, of course, uh, The History of the World Part 1. <laughs> Um, there was a there was a really moving part where uh, Marty Sines is like, oh, you know, they asked him what his favorite part of the film was. He's just like, oh, it's just seeing my brother just radiant on screen, which I thought was good stuff. I think I have only seen him in Running Scared. Uh, with uh, Billy Crystal. With Billy Crystal, yeah. I've heard like, that movie's not bad. I couldn't really say how good it is because it's been so long. Mm. Uh, I've heard of Rage in Harlem is good. Uh, anyway, so that's the Cotton Club. Um, definitely, if you could track down this version, which uh, I was reading that a lot of the cut footage is just performances, which is which are across the board great. So uh, if you can watch this this encore edition, I would definitely recommend seeing it. Um, I feel like Francis Ford Coppola is a filmmaker who I think is more interesting than people give it credit for him. And I feel like all of his films, after sort of the period that he's most lauded, uh, I think probably I, I, I want to visit them because they seem interesting. Well, so I watch. Uh, I watched the film Halloween, which you have seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a little ring. Yeah, did you talk about it on the show? No. Hmm. 
Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a very solid uh, horror film. It does a really good job of, like, sort of upsetting the uh, suburban um, uh, scenery that it takes place in. Um, and I think it is interesting to compare it, or it is a worthwhile sort of task to compare it to, to the um, genre that it, it partially inspired, like the slasher genre, right? Um, and I quite like that uh, Jamie Curtis in this film is a little more... Um, it's not that, like, the, the standard sort of knock against these films is that it's, like, you know, people who are desiring of sex and drugs mm-hmm. and whatever society is, is you know, against are the ones who are being punished, like, metaphorically by the killer, right? Yeah. Um, whether that, that is, like, the, the film sort of taking the stance of the killer or not. But what, the thing I like about this um, film is that uh, Laurie isn't necessarily, like, a, you know... Um, perfect final girl architect because there's a point where she smokes dope and then she sort of talks about her desires for boys too. I don't know. I just mm. thought that it was like an interesting sort of twist on that. I feel like, um, you know, knocking against this film and, and pretty much every other slasher is they're pretty misogynistic. Yeah. Um, and I think this film sort of, I mean, look at the body count guys. Two men get killed and two women get killed. It's, it's, it's an equal opportunity. <laughs> um, but I just think this is a just masterful conjuring of mood. And I think that, that Carpenter sort of, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I messaged you a little bit, but it's, a, it's sort of, sort of, uh, it's sort of thematically similar to PB Tom where it uh, equates um, voyeurism with the film camera uh, and that specific trait with, uh, you know, murder. So uh, in that way, it's sort of a uh, um, disavow or a, a subversion of like the, uh, the idea of like the um, positive qualities of voyeurism, which come through in a lot of films. Um, so I think and I just think it's a really well constructed and, and sharp edged um, object, you know. An amazing score. Uh, yeah. Um, yes, definitely. And it was it was Carpenter's first ever score, if if I understand correctly. I think it was just a budgetary thing that he decided to do it himself. I believe. And it's, it's amazing how economical it is, but how much usage it gets out of that. Just this, you know, repetitious, um, you know. It's such an iconic, iconic score. It's great stuff. It's definitely a good time. And I, 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 this, is a, this is, I think, what um, makes me like Michael Myers more than sort of like Freddy or Jason, too. Uh, is that, I mean, obviously Jason and, and Michael Myers have a lot of similarities. <laughs> and they're both sort of like mass killers who uh, are the product of, you know, childhood trauma, right? Um, but the thing I like about Michael Myers is that he's he's a little bit of a prankster. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree with me on that on that statement? How do you mean? Well, so there's there's sort of two uh, big pranks that he pulls on people, which obviously leads to to uh, either murder or attempted murder. Um, which is that uh, he um, there's a great scene where he murders. So there's a there's a couple who have sex. Uh, and he murders the male half of this couple, right? Um, and the way that he sort of um, gets to the female half who is who is in bed is that he uh, puts on a, a like a stereotypical ghost costume mm. and pretends to be uh, <laughs> um, this woman's boyfriend uh, until he obviously murders her. Um, and then there's a great sequence where Laurie investigates the house where all the murders are taking place, and he's just so perfectly arrange the body so that it'll, she'll discover them one after another and these, like, grotesque poses that, like, come down. It's like a haunted house, right, where they swoop down from the rafters or she opens the door and there's another one tucked away. 
Um, but I just thought it was very amusing. It, 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 made me, <laughs> it made me just consider Michael Myers as like, you know, because obviously the film sort of posits him as this like uh, existential specter of just death, right? Yeah. Um, he doesn't really have any motivation. Yeah. Or anything. Um, but I just like the idea that he's just, you know, he likes a good prank. <laughs> uh, and this is continued um, in Halloween 2. Um, which I think is a pretty decent sequel. Um, it's shared a lot of the same creative team as Halloween one uh, and Carpenter and Deborah Hill who, um, produced, and I believe also co-wrote the first Halloween film, um, returned to produce and co-write, uh, this film though is directed by, um, Rick Rosenthal, but, um, you know, it continues a lot of sort of the tricks established by Carpenter and it shows a cinematographer too, uh, who's Dean Cundy, who, um, I think this one was... Dean Cundy? Dean Cundy. Cundy. Ah. Um, but it's really... It's it's just really well shot. I don't know what to say besides that. It has this great sort of evocation of mood. And he borrows a lot of, like, tricks from the first film. And there's some repetition of kills. Like like I said, uh, with that, that sequence where, the, where Michael Myers pretends to be the woman's boyfriend, that, that literal exact sequence happens again in Halloween 2. <laughs> Um, which I thought was funny it's sort of uh, you know but um, you know Michael Myers does a lot of like banging on stuff to get people to go into rooms and stuff like that uh, <laughs> he's, he's he, you know he just he just likes to, to, to trick people and make them unsettled um, uh, is Jamie Lee Curtis in the sequel or not yeah uh, it's, like, it's like one of those sequels that picks up like right after the events of the first film right um, and it mostly takes place in a hospital uh, but it has some like, great bizarre moments like there's a great scene where the police are like uh, chasing after, um, you know, like they're doing a manhunt for Michael, right? And there's a guy who just comes out of nowhere. Uh, he's wearing like, a Michael Myers mask, and they like they the, this police car collides into him, right? Okay, and then it, that collides into a a truck, which immediately explodes <laughs> and burns this like random teenager to death, which is great. <laughs> so it makes the police seem really incompetent, which I thought was funny. Um, but I think that it is it is interesting um, that uh, the way that this one was shot is pretty similar, like I said, to the first film. But it mostly takes place in interior, or, uh, yeah, in interior environments, right? So um, it, it's almost like this weird uh, transition from the the sort of paranoia and fear that that um, Carpenter and, and his collaborators infuse in this the, like the open suburban spaces in the first film. Um, in these, you know, the the cramped interiors of the the ho- um, the hospital. Um, uh, I, do th- I don't think this film is like uh, great by any means, and it does include some stuff that I think is really stupid. Like it makes Michael Myers a little too like supernaturally, which the rest of the films will do to the nth degree. Like this motherfucker gets shot in the head like three times, and is still like coming at them. Like okay, <laughs> um. But, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a solid sequel. Oh, and also it introduces the idea that Michael Myers is, like, Laurie's sister, which I just think is stupid and, and sort of detracts from the, um, uh, the, the primal sort of horror of the first one, too, you know? It becomes less interesting to me if he's just like, I'm track, I'm going to murder my family, you know? Yeah, the more backstory you add, the less interesting it usually becomes with these yeah. type of films, I yeah. find. So, but I, I definitely think Halloween 2 is worth a watch. Um, and then, not not content with watching just those two ha- Halloween films, you also watched Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which, have you seen that one? No, I haven't seen anything except for Halloween. 
I, I think Halloween 3 is a really solid horror film. Um, do you know anything about it? I've heard of it. It was produced. It wasn't originally produced as a different film, right? And then it got integrated into the Halloween franchise. No, so or the, the way the way Carpenter originally wanted Halloween to go was that um, he wanted it to be basically an anthology series, right? Where each each film would be sort of a different um, like story that'd be that'd be told under this like moniker, maybe have like a similar mood. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and obviously the the incredible success of Halloween one uh, meant that the studio wanted to make a direct sequel to it, right? Which they, obviously they did. And the reason that Carpenter was so involved in the sequel is they were like, you know, we're going to make this film anyway, so you can choose whether you want to be involved in it or not. Um, I don't know how exactly he was able to finagle the third film be made, you know, according to this original, like, idea, right? Because um, Michael Myers is not in it at all, right? No. Well, I, there's a brief sequence where one of the, the character watches a trailer for Halloween. Um, but that's it. Um, it's, it's just more of a, you know, it's, a, it's like a in the same universe. But um, Carpenter and Deborah Hill did produce it. And he also did the music for it with Alan Horrath. Hor- uh, right? The score is actually really good. It has a sort of Blade Runner-y quality to it that I think is really solid. Uh, it doesn't use the theme at all. Um, but anyway, so it was directed and written by Tommy Lee Wallace, who is the editor of Halloween. And I maybe <laughs> Halloween too. I don't know. Uh, but he's definitely someone who, um, you know, was like in Carpenter's camp, right? Um, and it had the same cinematographer as the first two. Um, but it's basically this like really um, strange and pretty unsettling story about a. Um, I honestly, I, I kind of don't. I kind of just want you to watch this movie. And I wish I had chosen it for our, like, Halloween special. Mm. Because it, it kind of works best when you don't know that much about it, because it has some, like, really shocking moments in it. Um, but I could talk about, like, non-plot stuff. Um, and then well, you don't have to, to really say anything. It's bonus features yeah. you can just say. It's but, worth um, watching. I think I think you would like it. it is it sort of videodromish quality to it, too? Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a great, like, scumbag weed performance by Tom Atkins, who plays, like, this divorced daddy's an alcoholic doctor. <laughs> <laughs> the, the main, like, motivation for him to, like, sort of go on the quest and un- un- unravel the mystery that is uh, that is the film uh, is basically that he wants to have sex with a, um, uh, the daughter of a of, of, of victim, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know that he's a scumbag when he asks this woman's age... Uh, after they party had sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just a, it's just a really, um, I don't know, it just has this like, great sort of atmospheric uh, and moody feel to it that I really liked. And it has this like interesting sort of uh, idea of like um, ethnic, uh, even if it's white, ethnic resistance to corporatization. And it has, it sort of um, uh, preempts um, and predicts, uh, you know, the anti-corporate uh, stance that Carpenter's films would later take with, like, Bailiff and, and other films. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely it's definitely good. And then, Hugh, um, did I continue watching Halloween films? Yes. The answer is yes. Um, I watched Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, because uh, Halloween 3 was not that big of a hit, so they were like, you know, let's bring back the, the moneymaker on this. Uh, as as um, cum shots are the money makers of the porn world, so too is Michael Myers the money maker of the Halloween films. Um, and you know what? The, this film is it, if if Halloween two is sort of 
you know, it was made after a couple of the more standard, um, standard sort of, or the genre of the slasher coalesced a little bit more. You can definitely feel it as sort of a reaction to that where it ups the bloody, like, kill count and mm-hmm. and sort of uh, nudity of the first film. Um, Halloween 4 is just sort of like a standard slasher that has uh, Michael Myers, like, sort of put into the, you know, killer role. Um, oh, he's not the hero in this one. No, no. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's definitely a film that has parts of it that I really enjoyed. Um, like the fact that, uh, so at the end of Halloween 2... Uh, Michael Myers and um, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Loomis are presumed dead, right? <laughs> and they saw their book back, of course. Uh, and um, <laughs> um, the way that this is indicated in Loomis' body is that he has a limp, okay? And mm-hmm. also a uh, burn on his face, which the percentage of which like changed from scene to scene. <laughs> but that was really amusing. Um, it makes Dr. Loomis seem uh, both incompetent and uh, uh, just like a drunk. <laughs> There's a great straight sequence where he's like hitchhiking, okay? And he gets made fun of by some random like college students who just blow dirt in his face. And then he gets picked up by this traveling priest who's like pulling from this bottle of whiskey, which is amazing. <laughs> and of course, um, Lubus accepts the offer to have a drink. Um, so sort of the, the plot line of this film was that Michael has come back to murder his niece. He's played by um, Danielle something. Um, and Jamie Curtis uh, cameos as a photograph. <laughs> Danielle Harris. Yes, Danielle Harris. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm trying to think. It has some, like, great bizarre code. Like, there's one sequence where Michael Myers kills someone by, st- like, putting a shotgun through their body. <laughs> mm. uh, and it has this great scene where uh, basically this, like, gang of hillbillies... Um, team up to become like a, a winch mom for Michael Myers, right? <laughs> Just refer to the film as such. Uh, and then they immediately like accidentally shoot a, a, another person to death. <laughs> um, and that's like them roving of hillbillies who Michael Myers eventually dispatches, of course. So is he a bad guy? I don't, I don't know. Um, and then it has a great like weird twist ending that I really liked. You know, it's definitely a more generic film than the other Halloween films, but it is not without its pleasures, I would say. Why did you go on this Halloween kick? Uh, I just wanted to. Okay. Okay, so what have you been watching? <laughs> uh, let's see, what did I watch? I'm just having a look. I watched a film called uh, Mr. Roosevelt, mm. uh, written and directed by Noel Wells. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Um, And I watched this film because I was, for some reason, reading some interview with Scott Orkman, I think, or some piece that he was featured in. Mm. I think it was like like a pitchfork piece about what he's listening to at the moment. And he was listening to music by Noel Wells for some reason. (laughs) And uh, in passing, he said, oh, she's really talented. She made this film that everyone really liked, Mr. Roosevelt. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't go rushing, oh, I've got to see Mr. Roosevelt, because it didn't sound particularly good. But then I randomly see it appear on Netflix when I was listlessly scrolling for something to watch, and ended up watching it. And it's about Noelle Wells going back to her hometown Mm. in Austin, Texas, of course. Of course. Um, In the wake of the death of her cat that her ex-boyfriend was... uh, No, I'm done. I don't want to watch this. (laughs) All right, done. Let's move on. (laughs) And then I watched another film with Noah Wells. Mm. 
Because you love wasting your time. Because that also appeared on Netflix. And that was called Happy Anniversary. And this came to me via my brother. And I can't remember why he mentioned it. It wasn't a recommendation? I don't think he had seen it. Mm. But it was like the person who made it also made something else. And I don't know. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll just watch it. Because uh, again, I, I, you... I'm in a bad place. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, I can't say that it wasn't of your own creation. Happy Anniversary is slightly more uh, tolerable because it's a film about uh, a couple having relationship difficulties. Yeah, your favorite genre. I find that genre more enjoyable than couples not having relationship difficulties, excepting romantic comedies, which I love, which I guess is a big exception. But anyway, so this stars Noel Wells and Ben Schwartz, uh, but it's pretty bad. And then... <laughs> what else did you waste your time uh, watching? I watched the film uh, Going the Distance mm. What's Which that is a uh, romantic comedy About a long distance relationship Featuring Drew Barrymore and Justin Long With uh, terrible supporting performances As the Quirky Friends By Charlie Day and Jason Sudeikis mm. Sounds uh, I, I like Drew Barrymore I think she's a good fit for romantic comedies and I actually quite... I don't mind Justin Long. And it's possibly just because of the Apple ads. Uh, I hate Justin Long. Does that surprise you? I, I like him for the Apple ads and his terrible performance in Die Hard 4. Those Apple ads are terrible. <laughs> I think it's funny casting. I, yeah, I assume he got that role based on the fact of those ads, right? What, Going the Distance or Die Hard 4? Die Hard 4, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going the distance is okay. I'm it's, not going to watch it's, it. It's pretty, pretty standard rom-com stuff. Not very good. Um, I also watched the seven year itch, which I've owned for a long time as part of a Billy Wilder box set, but never got around to watching. Well, I thought that was a lesser or wilder. So had I. So that's why I had never got around to watching it until recently. And, uh, yes, it's not very good at all. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. pretty bad actually. Wow. The problem with this film, I think this is something Billy Wilder has acknowledged, is that it was based on a play, and it's co-written with the playwright, but because of the production code, like, the whole point of the play is basically neutered in this cinematic adaptation. The The play is about a guy having an affair and feeling guilty about it. In the film version, they can't show him having an affair. Yeah. So the whole point of the play is basically removed. And it's pretty unpleasant and unlikable, mm. to be honest. But iconic. Well, the iconic thing is not even really part of the film. So the the shot of her with her skirt lifted up, which there are press shots of and which uh, comprises the famous poster to the seven-year itch, was also cut down by the production code in the actual film. So you never actually see the shot in the way that, you know, it's become an icon. <sighs> Uh, so I watched the Leo McCary film Make Way for Tomorrow from 1937. Avowed um, influence on Tokyo Story. Tokyo Story. One of your favorite films of all time. If not your favorite film of all time. No, it is not. What? It's not even my favorite Aussie film. What? Though it is great. What? Uh, but I highly recommend Make Way for Tomorrow if you can track it down somewhere. Which I'm sure you can. So it does tell a similar story to, to Tokyo Story, 
Tokyo Story is not a direct remake or anything. It's just inspired by it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think it was a hit in Japan at the time. Mm. And uh, so it tells a similar story about the about an aging couple and um, their selfish sons and daughters who don't look after them properly in their final days. And it, it has the interesting thing about this compared to Tokyo Story mm. is it has like the furnishings of you know, classical Hollywood cinema of the, of the time, sort of this overbearing score and uh, a certain way with the performances and, and a certain feel. But it is also really, really bleak, especially the ending. Mm. And I like that that contrast. Highly recommended. I, won't, I don't want to say too much about it. You should just watch it. Okay. I know, I know a lot about it already. So you can do whatever you want. I just didn't have anything else to say. I was just trying to get out of it. Okay. Okay, well, what else did you watch, if anything? I watched Royal Wedding, uh, which is a 1951 uh, musical directed by Stanley Donnan. Uh, I think this is right before he went on to do Singing in the Rain. But this features Fred Astaire, uh, originally supposed to feature Judy Garland, but uh, she was too erratic. Mm. So she was replaced with Jane Powell. And Mm. this is the film that has the famous sequence in which Fred Astaire dances on the ceiling. Mm. which is great. And I really like the way they set up that sequence because there's an earlier scene set on a cruise ship where the turbulence of the waves sort of push them on different angles and stuff. And then a character mentions the fact that she dances on the ceiling and then we finally see that sequence. So I, I thought the way that they structured that show-stopping moment um, and anticipate it in the film is clever. Uh, very enjoyable, very good film. I uh, rewatched The Awful Truth. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, so I don't need to talk about that again. But that's another Leo McCary film. Um, same screenwriter as well, Vina Del Mar. And then I watched three more films. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's right. If you look at my letterbox, you're like, where are they? I didn't log them. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's time for it to be over. That's right, you motherfucker. No, it's never over. So, um, on Monday night, between about midnight and 4 a.m., so I guess technically Tuesday morning, I watched two films I had exactly no desire to watch. And those films were Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. <laughs> okay. And Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> what was the impetus behind you watching these? Exactly. Films? What was the impetus? <laughs> Why did I watch these films if I had no desire to see them? Well, I'll explain. Were you on a date here? <laughs> no. Were you, were you with your parents? No. You're getting, you're getting warmer, though. It, it did involve other people. So I was out with uh, my housemate and the landlord. Mm. <laughs> okay. He <laughs> <laughs> was also a housemate of yours, right? Uh, no, he now lives upstairs. Yeah, he lives in the same house as you. Yes, lives in the same house, but is not like a housemate in the sense of sharing the same facilities. Yeah. So, um, okay, so you're out with them. Out with him and my other housemate. And over the course of the night, at some point, he was talking about films, right? My landlord. <laughs> and he was like, oh, have you seen the film Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri? It's so good. It's so great. I was like, no, I haven't. He's like, well, I've got a, I've got a copy of it. I've got a, I've got a blue, I've got a, it, it on a thumb drive right now. We're going to watch it. And I, I can give that to you. And he also said the same thing about Bohemian Rhapsody. He was like, no, I haven't seen it. So you, you felt some... Um 
social uh, obligation to watch it. Correct. I, was, I didn't. I didn't see any opportunity to be able to say no. I have no desire to see that. The cue. Obviously, what you should have said is yes. I have seen these films. Well, I didn't expect him to have copies of them that he could lend me immediately. But the worst thing was like it wasn't like he was like in his house and gave them to me directly. This was like on the way back to the place. And I was like, oh, he's probably going to forget about it, right? Because I've asked him like five times to fix the lock on the back door, which doesn't work. And he keeps forgetting about that. But, of course, he remembers immediately to yeah. come down with three billboards yeah. and Bohemian Rhapsody. Here he's spreading his taste with you. So um, I watched um, The Day I Became a Woman and the House is Black. I was like, well, now I've seen some decent examples of now cinema. Now I'm going to see great films. <laughs> now it's time to step it up. So I watched three billboards. Um, now I've thoroughly... I before watching it, I'd thoroughly absorbed every negative think piece about the film mm. and felt like I'd already seen it and hated it already. <laughs> but uh. when I was like sitting down to watch this, I, I was like, well, I know about its broader problems, its treatment of race and police mm. brutality and so forth, so forth. And I can take that as read, right. To some degree, unless I find mm. myself disagreeing with those assessments and then I can just see what's left. And hopefully it's somewhat entertaining. Maybe there's, some residual entertainment that I can get from this film. But I certainly uh-huh. did not expect it to be quite as bad as it is. Mm. And I mean, like, just on, like, a line-by-line level. Mm. Um, the dialogue is so obscenely overwritten and self-satisfied. And the narrative is just absolutely ludicrous. And I'd forgotten some of the developments that I think you had told me about, like um, Willy Wonka, whatever his name is, Willy the Wonka. sheriff, Chief Willoughby. Uh, played yeah. by Woody Harrelson, um, killing himself. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that seems great. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's. I I couldn't I couldn't believe how bad it was. Mm. What about Bohemian Rhapsody? So Bohemian Rhapsody is a pretty terrible film. You hadn't seen it, right? No, I can't remember. It's a pretty terrible film, but it has some wonderfully enjoyable pop biopic moments. It has all the great bits of like coming up with the songs and yeah, yeah. And like recording, there's this is this amazing scene which Mike Myers is in for no reason. It's sort of as as weird as, as he is in um, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards, yes. Like, why? What's the point of him being in this film? It's called fun, Hugh. You know, um, one of his amazing sequences where they're like, "We can't release Bohemian Rhapsody; it's six minutes long." No, we're gonna do it, and we're gonna do a whole opera. It's gonna be called A Night at the Opera. It's it's all it's got all that sort of great stuff in it. And I think um, the much-praised performance by Rami Malek is actually pretty bad, but hilarious. Okay. The funniest part of the film is him, I think. Well, I'll have to give it a watch then. So, Hugh, you, you, you talked about two films. You talked about... You said three films in it. Uh, actually, four. Two more. Four? Are you fucking kidding me? Bro, you got, Not you gotta, four you more, gotta, as in I've like, got two more to you gotta, cover. You've got you to race through these. <laughs> You took forever. I'm taking less time than you did. <sighs> okay, here we go. I watched Jupiter Ascending, uh-huh. um, which had been sitting in my next Netflix queue for a, a long time. Mm. I'm, ba- I'm basically at the point where I've run out of things to watch, so I'm just watching whatever. Uh, Jupiter Ascending is it's, it's it's not it's not very good. Uh. Um, like it shouldn't work, and it doesn't really. But it's mm. quite enjoyable watching the way it doesn't quite work, if that makes sense. 
Um, some of the visuals are handled pretty, pretty well. And it's got bits and pieces that are enjoyable. And uh, I thought Mila Kunis was pretty good in it, actually. I like the way that she didn't seem to fit. And finally, I watched a Wong Jing film from 1984, I think, called Prince Charming. For some reason, that was on Netflix. Mm. Uh, that's the film debut of Maggie Chung. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen any Wong Jing films before. Nope. But he makes very silly sort of comic book comedies um, that are frequently puerile and tasteless and kind of lowest common denominator. But he does have something and sometimes it just works and you laugh despite yourself. So this film is like 80 minutes long. It doesn't have the narrative to sustain it. So it's all over the place and it feels really long. <laughs> but it's still... <laughs> It's still quite enjoyable. Um, there's like uh, quite a good sequence that plays surprisingly well now, even though almost nothing else about the film does, um, in which uh, two characters are about to go on a date, a man and a woman. Um, and the woman's family is like schooling her on how to protect herself against the man's advances. And they do it like a, as a joke on like martial arts moves, like he'll do the lunging dragon and this is how you defend it. And that was, quite, that was quite a good bit. You could extract that from the film. The rest is trash. But no, it's, not, it's, I, it's still fun. It's still enjoyable. I like um, Hong Kong comedies. All right, motherfucker, drag on forever. Drag on forever, I'll be fine. Drag on forever, anytime. Uh -huh. Three... Two, one, start. Uh, so, Hugh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I do not have Are a you, like, speaking from across the room? <laughs> ...of options to choose from when it comes to this particular episode of... Um, Dragon Dragon Forever. Forever. I just said it. I knew what it was. Um, and so uh, I could choose to talk about uh, the new epic role-playing game I've been playing, uh, Dragon Quest Eleven. Or I could choose to talk about the anime I've been watching, or the book about the Coen brothers I've been reading, or about this William Gibson book I'm also reading. I have plenty of things to choose from, you. But do you know what I'm going to talk about? you know what I'm going to spend my precious five minutes to talk about, you? What? I'm going to talk about a little video game series, which you may or may not have heard of, called Ace Attorney. Or Phoenix I have Earth. heard of and played. So, Hugh, um, I assume you know what a 3DS is. I possess one. So, on this 3DS, Nintendo semi-recently, maybe not recently at all, but I semi-recently acquired uh, a, a trilogy of the Phoenix Wright games. Okay. The first three games are released for the DS, the original DS, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Now, the first Phoenix Wright game was the first thing I ever remember ordering, on, ordering online. And it's one of my favorite games, but I remember almost nothing about it because I haven't played it in 15 or so years. So you might imagine. So I've been playing through that recently. And here, you know what? It really holds up. Just a charming, fun series of visual novel slash adventure games where you play as a sort of... Uh, um, uh, defense attorney come sort of detective and it's a weird sort of 
futuristic kind of Japan where the law system has changed to where every trial is only only three days long and uh, oftentimes people are found guilty on the stand. There's no juries anymore. It's a weird setup for a game. It, it, mostly the setting is in the background. It doesn't really come into the, the foreground that often. Um, but these are just a series of bizarre, comical, uh, and uh, sometimes even moving games where you sort of investigate crimes, you uh, cross-examine witnesses on the stand, one of whom invariably turns up to be the actual murderer. Um, and, and you get to a, say, objection! Yes, and you can, you can literally say objection uh, into the microphone if you so choose. Which I have not really? been doing. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, didn't, uh, I can't believe you played the game and didn't realize this, uh, but it has a really great soundtrack too. No, no, but the old versions, you couldn't do that. In the DSU one, you could. Really? Yeah, definitely. Oh. The DS had a microphone for whatever reason. Um, I didn't know that functionality was built into the original release though. I think it, I mean, I'm like, I'm like 80% sure it was. I definitely remember doing it when I was a kid, so... Uh, you can do some research. But it's been, like re, it's been redone a few times. Yeah, it came out for the... I mean, the original release was never released in the States. But the original, like, um, English release was for the DS. Because it originally came out for the Game Boy Advance. Um, but the release that you would have played would be the DS one. Uh, which I think did have a microphone... Had microphone support. But I could be wrong about that. I remember the microphone um, support where you blow into it to blow away dust. Like you'd mm. blow into the microphone and it would blow away yeah, the it, evidence it, dust. It definitely, it definitely was in it then. Uh, but I would recommend that anyone who hasn't played these games, if you like adventure games or you like um, sort of goofy mystery stories to check out the series, uh, they're really good time. Would you agree with that assessment, you? Yeah. I really enjoyed them when I played them years ago. Yeah. Um, they they released like a few recently, which I have not played. I kind of want to get back. No, it's, it's been yeah. They've sort of rebooted it a few times. Um, no, they said like one reboot, but it still follows the same story, as far as I understand it. They but just, there was a it split off into that other the the prosecutor. Well, they released they released they released two they released a spinoff, yeah, where you play as Miles Edward, the sort of hot shit prosecutor who's like Phoenix Wright's evil counterpart. Um, they released yeah. two of those, but only one of them was translated. Um, and then they released another sort of spinoff that was that's only been released in Japan, where you, it's like you know back in time, um, Phoenix writing. Uh, and then there's a game called Apollo Justice, which yes, there's the Apollo Justice, but yeah. that Phoenix Wright is in that game. It's, yeah. it's only one. There's only one Apollo Justice game, and Apollo Justice comes in the later sequels too, if I understand correctly. So mm. it's not really a reboot in, the, in that it's still following the same like continuity. I think. All uh, right, I think you're done. Project A plus that was Project A plus Project A plus that was Project A plus. Project A plus featuring the both of us. Project A plus now it's time to say. Thanks very much, please stay in touch, otherwise we might lose the will to fight, then we'll close down our website, we're gonna go, make another show, now we have
have to say goodbye Hope you get that dream job Maybe meet a handsome guy We pray to God that you'll find happiness before